episode four now of the Four Lifters by Lifters podcast. And today we have Jason Arndt, IFBB Pro supplement expert. Are you there yet? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> so uh, I think it'd be a good idea to give people a little bit of your backstory just because you've been in the industry, both fitness and supplement for so long. Yeah, so I started off uh, just, you know, as, as, a, as an aspiring athlete, you know, when I was younger in my, in my you know, uh, pre, not preschool, but, but high school days and elementary days and evolved from, uh, from the sport of wrestling into football and uh, uh, steadily progressed into bodybuilding. Um, after high school, I wanted to take the route of bodybuilding, and that's when um, I really started paying attention to diet, nutrition, supplementation, and uh, what I could do to help benefit my progress, speed up my progress to get to a level that I was, look, I was always, I was always competitive. So whenever I did something, I wanted to try to be the best I could possibly be at it. So, you know, knowing as much as I could about proper nutrition, proper supplementation, I thought that that would really aid me in, uh, in the longevity of the sport and helping me uh, obtain you know, at that time, the goal I was looking to obtain. So how old were you when you started? I started working out with weights, probably 15, 16 years old. Um, I actually competed in AAU competition when I was 16 years old, even when I was still wrestling and playing football, um, just because I did, it did spark an interest in me. Um, but after high school, that's when I really started taking the turn and going in that direction. Um, so I would say from 18 to 19 years old is when I really started getting my hooks into the sport and learning as much as as I can about uh, the body, how the body assimilates things, how things are utilized, um, and what to, what nutrients to, to take in properly to, to, be, to be effective at uh, recovery and performance. So how old were you when you first competed? So, like I said, 16 in an AAU competition was more just like to try it out, but when I was 19 years old, I competed when the Teenage Mr. New Jersey, and I won the Teenage Philadelphia um, Muscle Mania competition. Okay. And then I just kept going. So uh, when you turned pro, how old were you there? So um, at 20 years old, my first year entering into the, not the teenage division, the men's division, I competed and I was looking to uh, get a national qualification. So I believe at 21, I won the, uh, I was a middleweight. I won the NPC uh, East Coast competition. And then the following year, I entered my first national level competition. I believe I was 23 at the Junior USA, took third, went back the next year, um, 24 years old, did the Junior Nationals, took second, did the Nationals that year, um, and kept going back and forth from the Nationals to the USA. Uh, 26, I got my pro card, but at 25, I won the light heavyweight division of the USA, came back as a heavyweight in uh, 1998. I was 26 years old, won the USA again as a heavyweight, and then I went, o- went off to the... Uh, the nationals and when the heavyweight class and the overall there to get my my pro card so you've seen kind of the the two generations of bodybuilding right yeah. a lot of people talk about 90s bodybuilding yeah. and then you know what we have today uh so you competed in both right right so early, late 90s early 2000s I, I that's what people talk about nowadays they feel as if that was the you know the golden era. You know I know they've used that term in the past, yeah. but it was it was really the hardcore era. It was it was the evolution of bodybuilding from one generation to the next, and the level of physique. And um, you know in the early Arnold days, you know there wasn't much science. Not to use the term science back stuff because a lot of it's anecdotal. You know anecdotal. Yeah. Um, 
anecdotal. Um, but the trial and error had progressed um, at such a at such a rate that you were really starting to see a significant difference in the physiques, from a chemical side of you, from a nutrition side of you, from a training uh, side of you. All the philosophies changed, but the work ethic, you know, that that is, um, I guess, the one common denominator that transitions from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s and the early 2000s of those generations of bodybuilders. That always stayed the same, and then. You know, something kind of happened, you know, after that. But it can't be just work ethic, right? Like, you can't say that Phil Heath doesn't work hard. And, and like, you're well, I'm not, I'm not really even applying to Phil Heath. I'm, I'm applying to the generations a little bit younger than him that are trying to obtain I their see. pro status and get to a national level. So you're talking about, like, the, the, the 20-year-olds of today, yeah. for the most part. Yeah, it's just, and, 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 you know, maybe it's not their fault. Maybe uh, the sport did drop, you know, it dropped in popularity. And uh, I think that came from, you know, uh, the physiques becoming a little too overwhelming and, and a little too distorted where it got to the point where, you know, I had more of a classic physique. You know, I was, I was only five foot five and I was a heavyweight, which I, I packed a lot of size for my frame. But I only competed at 204, 205 pounds in my heaviest. Right. But I still had a classical look, you know, small waistline, wide shoulders, sweeping thighs. And that look kind of changed with abuse of certain chemicals and, uh, it kind of morphed into something that was really unobtainable, and I think people realized that, and, and tickets weren't selling. So it started, you know, th that kind of, it lost a good generation of athletes um, due to the fact that athletes weren't making money. You have to earn a living. You're, you know, most people are under their prime in bodybuilding until their, their mid-30s. Yeah. What are you going to do? You're trying to support a family, or you're on your own, and then you're not paying your bills. You know, we all have to grow up, you know, sooner or later. So uh, it's either get a job, or uh, try to find a way to, to make money. And, and uh, the sport wasn't providing uh, beneficial ways for the athletes to make money. So it seems like that kind of just dropped off. So what about like, uh, <coughs> like training attitude? How would you describe it from, you know, the nineties and early two thousands to now? Okay. So it was work hard first. Everything was work hard, get your diet in, get your food in, get your nutrition in, uh, get your chemicals in, but that was all secondary. You know, the, 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 the one constant, the one control was you were busting your ass every day, you know, no matter what. And everything else was utilized to help catapult you. Um, but without that hard work, you know, without that drive and grunting it out in the gym, your physique wasn't going to change. Um, I think um, in, the, in the recent years that that kind of lost a little bit of its luster, you know, where, you know, Maybe people were afraid of getting injured. Maybe it's more of a different style of, you know, time under tension instead of intensity, you know, for, for contraction, you know, or intensity to, to break down the cells to help them rebuild. It just seemed like more was relied on uh, the chemical side of things. And it was a different chemical side of things. They started doing things like uh, almost in a designer kind of way, like, hey, let's put this together and let's put this together like supplements, you know, yeah. just throw this on the wall and see what sticks. Um, and a lot of it doesn't stick very much and it could have a, uh, a negative effect on a physique and a negative effect on progress. But, um, I think the basic fundamentals were lost, um, in the, in the recent generation. From like a training standpoint though, do you think when you go into the gym or at least when you went into the gym, when you were actively competing, um, you took like a performance aspect to your training. Absolutely. So you, so you still like 
thought of yourself as like an athlete while you were training? Absolutely. My, I, I was preparing for my workout as soon as I finished the one the day before. And everything I did that day was to get me ready and prepare for the next day training session. If something hurt, I would try to rehab it overnight. If I uh, tweak things or this and that, make sure I was on point, you know, make sure like my, my, my food was in, make sure, you know, my meals were in, make sure yeah. I was prepared. You know, I was up on time. I'm an early morning trainer. So, uh, you know, I always felt like your hormone levels are higher in the morning. Plus you don't, plus I was always working. You know, I was one of those guys that I was a pro bodybuilder, but I had a full-time job and I had different, you know, investments at the time and then things going on because bodybuilding wasn't paying the bills, but it was, you know, it was in my heart. It was what I loved to do. I didn't do it for the money. You know, I did it for the sport of it and the performance aspect of it and the fact that I just love competing. Do you think, uh, like, machines and stuff kind of take away from that? It's funny you should say that because there's been so much back and forth on machines versus free weights. And, you know, I can honestly say that um, I used to say that, you know, there's no difference. You know, your, your muscle cells don't know the difference if you're pushing a machine or pushing a free weight. However, now that I'm retired, okay, and I've been – not that I'm doing solely, you know, all, all machines – but I've backed off a lot of the free weights and the power movements and the compound movements and the heavy power lifting and the heavy, heavy squatting and deadlifting and stuff like that um, just to, because I don't really need to risk injury. But during this quarantine, you know, I've been working out at home. I now have a home gym. I can actually see a difference going back because I'm limited. There's only so much I could do, you know, in my garage. So I am limited. So it's, there's been a different, you know, consistency to my, to my muscle shape and look using more free weights now. So it definitely does, definitely plays a role. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Kevin Lavroni said on RX muscle, he said, uh, one of the biggest things that had to do with the three dimensional look of their era was, uh, they didn't have, uh, he quoted hammer strength. Yeah. Uh, he said they probably had a lot more pec tears and, yeah. you know, uh, body problems, yeah. but, uh, but ultimately they looked better because of it. Yeah. So you, you think that's, I, I, I would definitely, I, I would have argued that in the past, but now I would, I would agree with that. So if you were to set up a workout, let's say a leg day, uh, can you walk us through that? For my competing days? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So leg day was, it was, it wasn't a day at the beach, you know, so we'd start off warming up, uh, you know, stretching hamstrings, stretching our quads out. So you stretch before you work out? Always. Yeah. So that's like a, that's like a no, no now, right? Uh, not with me. No, no a lot I, of people say that stretching prior to working out can cause more damage and, uh, uh reduction in strength. Uh, no, so I, be this, I believe this that is you've why, heard that. But this is why we have you here. <laughs> I believe uh, that you've heard that. Why? I, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's, uh, tell any Olympic track athlete, don't stretch before you go on a sprint. Well, I think they're, I, I guess I'm referring to static, uh, whereas they're looking at more dynamic warm ups. Um, but that's kind of but the way so, of, but even so, yeah. Look at box jumpers. Look at uh, you know football players. Look at explosive. Look at wrestlers. Who it's all explosive yeah. movements. Yeah, I guess they're warm ups. Uh, I, I guess what I'm what people are referring to in risk of injury is static stretching. Uh, so where you're just holding your toes and uh, you know just doing that uh, versus like a more dynamic where like a walking lunge or something would be a more of a dynamic warm up. Okay, so I, I have two avenues. You know, with that with that um, one is I always was taught and I've always applied you never want to train hard a cold muscle or a muscle that doesn't have blood in it because mm -hmm. then you're risking injury your tendons aren't warmed up your ligaments aren't warmed up and if you go into lifting heavy poundage without stretching and warming up you know it's 
You're throwing you're, ca- you're really throwing caution into the wind. Aside from that, the look that I, we were just talking about, the look I had, like the, or the Kevin LeVron look, or the, the Flex Wheeler look, mm-hmm. the Sean Ray's look, those are the guys that were in my generation. You know, those are the guys that I aspired, you know, to when I was training. They had athletic looks. They looked like they could run on the beach. You know, that you saw them walking down the street. They weren't some blocky, you know, rock thing, you know. Um, but my point is, for my training, I always wanted to maintain mobility. Okay. I was a wrestler. I was a football player. I was fast. I was, I always wanted to have that athletic look on stage because I always thought it looked a little more graceful. I always thought it was a little more appealing to the, uh, to the people in the audience, the people that were buying the magazines or, or going on, on media outlets looking to emulate somebody or looking to see a physique that they want to aspire to. To me, and I know other guys that like the opposite, like those big men, oh, I want to look like that, but that wasn't my style, you know, but in terms of stretching, I don't know how stretching would damage uh, a muscle unless you're abusing a stretch or or stretching improperly, but, you know, training is is, is a form of exercise just like anything else, and uh, you don't want to get under a bench press, you know, without fully you know, warming up your rotator cuffs and warming right. up your supraspinatus and warming up your, you know, your, your, your biceps and your shoulder, you know, every part of you, you need to be prepared for that lift. Um, but you give anybody enough time, they're going to find a problem with anything, you know, for, for yeah. Yeah. I, I think and, I, uh, and I think sometimes people just need to create things to argue about, you know, like I've heard things about carbohydrates and proteins and fats and it's just stuff that like, where are you? Come on. Like, everybody's trying to recreate the wheel, you know? Well, that's how you get paid. <laughs> right, right? You right. you confuse the people yeah. that are listening yeah. enough to pay you for your advice. Everybody, please stretch. <laughs> you know, it'll avoid injury. Make sure you're doing your stretching, and uh, you'll have more longevity in in, uh, in the sport. All right, so after you stretch yeah. for leg day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how we even got Okay, so, yeah, so I'd stretch for leg day. I would go into, uh, depending on the season, but I always liked um, – Doing leg extensions first, just to warm up the knees, warm up the you know your quads. Are you going heavy or? Well, the first you know three sets are basically just warm ups to get some blood in there, but then I would do two heavy drop sets beyond failure. Okay. Um, so I would start off with probably something I can only complete seven or eight full repetitions on, and then I would do um, get to the point where I can only extend three quarters of the way, only extend a quarter of the way. When you get to the point where you're only extending a quarter of the way, I would have my spotter assist me with two forced reps. Okay. I would then drop the weight 35% and I would do it again until total failure, get two forced reps, drop it another 35% and blow it out that way to the point where you can't move it and uh, two forced reps. So that was beyond failure training that was popular in our days. It's hard, it's intense, you have to have heart, but it pre-exhausts the muscles. So you get enough blood in there, two working sets of that, and then I would go over to do uh, hack squats. Okay. Hack squats, I would gradually increase. It was five sets of hack squats, starting with one plate, two plate, three plates, four plates, and sometimes up to five or six plates, depending on how I felt that day. Um, after hack squats, I would go over to uh, leg press, and I would do three or four sets of leg press with a drop set on that. Um, just go into failure and drop in two or three plates. When you say three or four sets, you're talking about increasing weight over time or three or four sets okay, at, so at the same at, top at, weight. Okay, so at that point, you know, you are pretty warmed up. But I would start, I think I used to use 11, 12 plates, maybe more, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. I would never go right into that. I'd probably start off with 8, 10, and then 12. But and you're I'm, counting those 8, 10 
12 as your working sets? Yeah. Okay. So with eight plates on each side, I would get, you know, 12 to 15 reps. Next set, I would do 10 plates on each side, okay. you know, 10 to 12 reps. And the final set with uh, 12 plates on each side, I'd probably get six or seven, and then I would drop three or four, do another six or seven, drop three or four, do another six or seven. From there, we went into walking lunges, three sets. Now, that's to really just stretch out the thigh, you know, good, you know, athletic-type lunges, not just banging your knee on the floor and, and you know, like good form, good technique. Um, lunges, I thought, were very important because it, it provided good shape and separation to the, the front part of the thigh. Um, so three sets of that, and by that point, you're dead, but I would always like to finish with squats. I'd do two, three sets of uh, regular barbell squats. You know, uh, I would go three, four, and maybe five plates on each side. Um, you know, no forced reps on those. By the time, you're just really blowing things out. But yeah. that was a full quad day. Okay. And if you didn't throw up halfway through, then you were, you were doing something wrong. Did you, uh, did you tend to do heavy free weight movements at the end? Yeah, so later on in my career, I, I particularly paid more attention to that to avoid injury. I always wanted to pre-exhaust. I didn't want to squat seven plates, you know, so right. five was enough. Even though five is still a ton of weight, you five's, know, yeah. five's a lot of weight. Um, but at the time, I probably could have done a lot more, but I didn't want to do a lot more, and I didn't think it was conducive, you know, with disc issues, spine issues, stuff like that, um, neck issues. Right. It's a lot of weight to put on your neck, and, and guys that have been doing it for years, they know, and uh, they're suffering probably the same way I suffer nowadays, too, with little tweaks and injuries that you carry around from doing you know, stupid shit like yeah. that for, for years. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of heavy weight over a lot of years. Over a lot of years. Yeah. yeah so that, that was a typical leg day. Okay. And you would follow the same general protocol for each body part? I mean, more or less. Hack squats, I would kind of uh, alternate with front squats, and I would always keep my feet right next to each other because I wanted it to build the belly, the sweet part of the thighs to give them more dominance. I was always broad, wide shoulders, so I always tried to match that with my, my thigh width. Um, so if it wasn't... Uh, Hack squats, one workout, it was uh, front squats. If it wasn't one leg press, it might have been a different leg press, like a Nebula or an Icarian or one of the Cybex ones that comes a little bit deeper. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't leg press, we might have done uh, you know, an inverted leg press or something along those lines. But the general concept of like rep scheme and yeah, intensity kind of stayed the same? Yeah, pretty much that always stayed in place. Um, that, that's, that was pretty much a constant... The beyond failure training, um, I would back off of that a little bit the closer I got to competition. As my body fat decreased, um, you know, when you're on a calorie-restricted diet, you know, you don't want to, you know, your immune system's compromised. You can't train that heavy. And anything that's that demanding plays such a toll on your central nervous system yeah. that you do need a break. So doing that every other workout with the beyond failure, um, or cutting it out five or six weeks before a show. Because at that point, you're not trying to build muscle. You're trying to maintain. Right. And uh, it's more about the fat-burning process and, and keeping what you have at, at, at that point, keeping fullness. So let's say you didn't have a show coming up and you're, you're training pretty hard. You're just enjoying it. Uh, we'll say you're at, like, a maintenance level. Um, like, what are you doing with your diet to go with the training like are you eating for recovery or you know what's how's that pair together okay so yeah th there was always there was always a plan in place you know so in my off season you know um i ate clean you know i would have a cheat meal every couple days but i wouldn't count carbs i didn't count fat um if i was getting out of shape i would pay a little more attention to that but i had a faster metabolism and i would really have to system and i didn't blow up after each show like i gradually started putting i know guys that gained 30 40 pounds you know 
within a week or two after a yeah. show. And it, it just, to me, that wasn't healthy and it just wasn't conducive to the look that I wanted. So I always tried to maintain and just grow from there. So I would slowly increase calories, but I had a, a, a set point on, on protein. You know, this is the protein I want to take in each day in my off season. Um, I'm getting some of the fats from the red meats. I'm getting some of the fats from the sources of chicken I'm getting, whether it's whole eggs or egg whites. Um, but carbohydrates, I always felt is not that they were non-essential, um, but you know, there was a timing for them. And I used that when I would diet also. And I mentioned that in the, in the Instagram yeah, interview yeah. that diets that I'm about to do. Like I always felt as if carbohydrates were, you know, borderline non-essential. There's a timing for them and we do need them. Uh, but to overload on them, it's just, it's a stress on your system. It, ex it distends your stomach. It's extra calories. Carbohydrates can get converted to body fat much faster than fat can. Um, so you have to, Pay particular attention to when you're eating them, the sources, and, uh, and how much you're taking in. Fats, you know, I like to keep the healthy fats in. That's why if I was going heavier with fats, it would be a little less carbohydrates. Um, but I wouldn't eat fats and carbs together because you, your body can't utilize two different energy sources at the same time. So most likely would be the carbs earlier in the day, and I would cut off fat to maintain glycogen and spare, uh, spare glycogen breakdown. I would increase the calories from fat at night so my body had something to utilize and burn throughout the night. But that's because you were training in the morning. That's right? because I was training so in the morning. It would be flipped if well, you were training at night. Well, that's why I said timing night. of things yeah. was always was always crucial for me and anybody else. If they're if they're training at a different time, I recommend you know starting off with a slower uh, release carbohydrate throughout the day, having um, some post uh, carbohydrates to recover and replenish glycogen. Like dextrose or something. Uh, dextrose is more just like a table sugar. You know, I love the carb ten, um, um, and I and the cluster dextrin. I'm not opposed to I used to use it um, but I like the carb 10 for intra workout and the cluster reduction I would probably put post workout um, with a banana you know and maybe like a, a light carbohydrate meal after that and if you're having another meal like a sixth or seventh meal just pretty much a protein and fat meal how did you know how much to eat if you weren't counting macros back then so it went on a, uh, a protein based uh, it was well it wasn't like I wasn't really counting macros I had an idea like here's here's let's just say 350 grams of protein that I'm taking in a day. And let's just say that attributes to 1,800 calories with the fat that's in the protein. Um, aside from that, I, I would try to get at least 4,000 calories. So my carbohydrates ranged probably to 200 to 250 grams on training days. On non-training days, it was less. And my fats were probably, uh, off the top of my head, maybe 100, 120 grams. Okay, so you kept protein consistent, but your calories would change based on the day? It would based on the day, based on my output, because your, your bodies are constantly different, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I never really wanted to become stagnant. I always liked kind of uh, switching, not switching things up, but on off days, I didn't really need to take in as many calories because my output was different, um, you know, on my recovery days and then on my training performance days. So if you have like an all-out leg session that you just described, you're not changing your diet at all? Okay, so on days like that, um, my protein sources are the same, my, my pre-workout meals are the same, my intra-workout meals are the same, um, but I would always have my leg workout at the end of the week, um, primarily on a Friday or a Saturday, and that was the day that I always had one of my cheat meals just to get some extra calories in. So you're a fan of having a cheat meal on a day that you're training yeah. and not an off day to use you know, the glycogen source for the next day? Well, that's the thing is, you know, you're going to, your, your body always absorbs nutrients, whether they're good nutrients or not, if it needs them when, you, when you're in recovery. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting around doing nothing, 
I'm not saying you're not still recovering from the day prior, but there's a slight little advantage of when you finish, you know, training, uh, especially a session like that, that your body's going to utilize those nutrients a little more efficiently. What would be your go-to cheat meal? I would go to Burger King and get a double Whopper with cheese and fries and uh, still a Diet Coke. I wasn't a big sugar guy. I was more like a burger or some pizza. Um, every once in a while, I'd have a dessert, but it was just it was one one meal. Yeah, people always. Uh, when I was in college, I used to compete in the uh, in the 220 and 198 weight class. I wanted to be a 220. Uh, I just never was able to fill out the weight class. And uh, I used to, after training, I used to go to McDonald's and get two doubles, yeah. two large fries, yeah. two Dr. Peppers. And then I would walk home and I would eat the entire thing on my way home. Right. And I got home, I would take a shower and I would eat again. Right. Uh, but I, I think people, uh, I think they overdo the fast food thing. Yeah. But I also feel like they could use it every once in a while as well they, they, depending on the personality type yeah see now they've just like you said everybody has to recreate the wheel and now yeah. they have refeed days and they yeah. have, what, the fuck, what the fuck is a refeed is this pg-13 or we <laughs> no no you're good, you're <laughs> good yeah <laughs> so I, I i somebody said this to me like what the fuck are you talking about a refeed day you're, you're constantly feeding what do you mean a refeed day yeah. and they have these days where they just eat shit all day and to me, the only reason I would have the cheat meal, and I would do it later on at night, because I always felt post-workout, look, you're not going to get, you need quality protein. You're not going to get the same quality protein from a, a piece of fried chicken or, or a burger from Burger King you know, than you would a, like a 10-ounce steak or a 10-ounce piece of chicken. or fit. Yeah. It's just better quality. So I would take my quality in when I needed it. And then at the end of the day, when I was backing off my carbs, I would have the high-fat meal. So it didn't affect me as much as it normally would somebody from a fat retention point of view. But also, you know, when you have a heavy meal like that, I was full for hours. You know, I didn't want it. So if I had it earlier in the day, it kind of always, and I did this from trial and error, it would always screw me up. Like, I was, wasn't hungry in my next meal. It's hard, it's hard enough getting these calories in yeah. to have to force feed yourself when you don't want to eat dry food. You know, as opposed to you, you just ate a Big Mac or, or a Double Whopper, you know, uh, which yeah. goes down in a second, you know. I would only sleep like a baby, too. Right. Like, uh, I mean, I would have the best sleep of my life if I ate a junk meal after a hard training session. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's heavy on your system. You know, it, it takes a while to digest. You get an insulin release, um, which could which could bring you down a little bit. But uh, most likely, it's just, even still now, I have a couple slices of pizza and I I'm like, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, in, I've become sensitive to certain foods, yeah. you know, in, in my later years. You talked uh, on Instagram about um, kind of like cycling protein sources. Yeah. Um, can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. So when I started off, I was heavy, you know, when I was learning um, what to do and what not to do, I always thought red meat was the best source and I would eat it five, six times a day. And you know, I was at a young enough age where I could get away with that. Right. Then it got to the point where, you know, every protein source has a different amino acid structure. So, like, you know, let me just try to get a different amino acid structure from something different. And plus, I was getting sick of eating red meat five, six times a day. So, I would have some chicken. I didn't use a lot of fish. Fish I kind of saved primarily for contest time. Um, I eat it now, but when I was, you know, in my mode, I would save it primarily for, for contest time because it's something that's soft, it's easy to digest, it doesn't take a toll on your system, and uh, and it's leaner, you know, it's it's depending on the kind of fish it is, but it's a leaner source than a, than a red meat or, or most chickens. Um, but it, I got to the point where, like, you know, I enjoy 
just having a variety of different foods. So it would be an egg white, a couple yolks, you know, with that, you know, source. I would have a red meat source. I would have a chicken source. I'd have a fish source. And when whey protein became popular, uh, popular, um, I started incorporating a couple of shakes a day, most likely, you know, first thing in the morning before I trained and post-workout uh, for just to get it right in me because it's fast, fast absorbing and pre-digestive. But you still, you always counted the whey protein towards your protein goal? Yeah, they were still, yeah. you know, you're talking 60 grams of whey protein with uh, 50 grams of either, uh, you know, a carb 10 or a cluster dextrin with a banana. So you're talking 70 grams of protein there, um, 60 grams of protein. So you're still talking a 400 calorie shake. It's, yeah. it's still a meal. You know, but the good thing about that is that it gave your digestive system a break. You know, all those heavy meals. I, th- I thought shakes became beneficial just because, you're look, you're trying to recover from training. Right. The last thing you need to do is, is spend time on your digestive system recovering and breaking down certain foods. Like, I wanted all my energy, you know, all my, my um, recovery energy, energy to go towards my muscle cells. You know, and having those heavy meals in me, I always felt like took away. What about like other food sources? Though? Were you a big greens guy? So I was, I was uh, in my off season. I was more a broccoli, a broccoli guy and salad guy. Okay. Um, Pre competition, I would pay more attention to greens, but I, I really utilize them for the digestive role, the fiber in, in the in the broccoli. I have broccoli with almost every meal, except my shake meals, obviously. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was well balanced. You know, I did it. I think I did it pretty proper. When, uh, when you would get into contest prep, would you essentially eliminate uh, carbohydrates and fats like okay. as you got into the show time? Okay, so I could, I could say that every contest prep has always been slightly different. Your body's always different. Your body's always evolving. So you're never going to prepare for a competition the same way twice. Um, my protein sources and my protein amounts would always primarily be the same based upon my weight at that time. Okay. Carbohydrates, I would actually cut them down first and I would keep my fats to a minimum. Um, and I would slowly decrease my carbohydrates until I got my body fat to a certain level. And at that point, based upon how my body would react to the foods and every time is different, I would either increase my carbohydrates or, or keep the carbs down and increase my fats. Sometimes I, sometimes I would even increase my protein just to get the calorie structure the same. Were you doing this all yourself? Yeah. You and never I've had a coach? Never had a coach. Uh, self-taught on everything, self-taught on nutrition, self-taught on supplementation. You know, I, I was, I learned at an early age, so I, under, I had a better understanding of things kind of coming into it. So there was these coaches, I came from Diamond Gym, which at the time was the mecca, you know, on the East Coast, you know, for, for pro bodybuilders and aspiring athletes and stuff like that. So I would talk to guys and they would come to me and ask me for advice. And I would talk to them about what they were doing and, and well, this doesn't really make sense. And I, why don't you try it this way? And then it just started where people just came to me and, you know, through that time and the more I competed and the more I, I sought to go after what I, the more I learned, I always thought there was so much power in knowledge. You know, I hate to use the cliche power yeah. in knowledge, but it's, but it's true. I've trained other pro athletes. I've trained other top amateur athletes. I've helped them get their pro cards and, you know, win pro competitions, you know? So, um, yeah, everything, everything is self-taught there's a rhyme and reason for everything. I, I did talk to a couple coaches at the time and just to get their ideas on things, And I feel as if, and this is something I could say to anybody working with a trainer, anybody working with a coach, you know, if something doesn't make sense, always ask why. There has to be a reason why you're you're doing everything. And I asked a guy once, you know, why, and I don't want to, you know, but I asked somebody, and this was somebody who was training top people, you know, and, and doing pretty well. 
I asked him why he took this approach. And he said, uh, I don't know. I just always done it. It just made sense. I said, well, how does it make sense? And he gave me a philosophy. And it didn't make sense. Yeah. It was just something that he said he always did. And I did the complete opposite. So, um, but look, you know, he, he did well with what he had. And, and uh, you know, I, there's a million ways to cross the road, you know? Yeah. I, I said on an earlier podcast that I've never been coached for powerlifting. Right. Uh, and I always, but I've coached, uh, you know, our entire team. So I was the team coach. So you get it. Uh, but there's just a certain amount of knowledge that you get when you force yourself to try to be the best yeah. on your own. Right. Right. Because you, you have to micromanage everything. You have right. to figure out what actually matters, what doesn't. Right. And, you know, in powerlifting, really only two things mattered. As many calories as you can get in is your performance athlete. Yeah. And uh, sleep. Right. And I, I feel like sleep is a something that's definitely undermanaged in today's role. I don't know if it was like the Dana Lynn Bailey kick where it was like, you know, no sleep and they advertise well, that. That's the thing. That's the new, that's the new you know, shiny toy, you know, yeah. uh, no days off. Yeah. And let's do like, who the, what do you mean? No, I'm not religious. Okay. I'm not religious by any, but even Jesus yeah. had a day off. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> you're more powerful than Jesus. Like, you know, like, so with, with but you're right. It's just what shiny new toy looks good to sell at this time. But for me, and even with my products that I create, everything is about performance and recovery. And there's always some new shiny toy that comes out that's science-backed and has this data on it. And there's a lot of them that I've tried. Okay, they're good. But you tell me one champion athlete that I got where I was because I was using this. No, they're using this, yeah. you know. And, and um, everything looks good on paper, right? My favorite's the the clinical dosing. Oh my god! Like, dude, well, so, so you ran a clinic on one dose, and that's right. the clinical dosing that you came up with. Okay, so here, right, <laughs> right. So I did an analogy on Instagram a, a couple of weeks ago, and um, it, it's the same philosophy. Okay, so acetaminophen, okay, you know, Tylenol, five hundred milligrams. That's the clinical dose based upon body weight. You need to take one capsule. And this is I'm just throwing these numbers out here, just for a hypothetical, just to make a point. Okay. You need to take one or two tablets based upon your body weight, based upon your age, but to reduce fever, pain, headaches, any type of association with any of those ailments, you, you take a Tylenol. And then there was another one that came out before that, that you had aspirin, pain relieving, analgesic, okay? 375 milligrams per aspirin, you need to take one a day um, for pain reducing effects, for you know, uh, anti-inflammatory, uh, fever, whatever. Those were the clinical studies. This is what they do. But then somebody came up with an idea. Okay, somebody came up with an idea. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 65 milligrams of aspirin because aspirin in high doses, not only is it, can it tear the lining of your stomach, but it could cause other digestive issues and it's toxic at certain levels. Acetaminophen is very toxic at certain levels. So you want to avoid those heavy compounds because of toxicity levels. So this guy came up with an idea. I'm going to have 65 milligrams of aspirin much more tolerable to the digestive system, much, more e much easier on the stomach. I'm going to give you, uh, I think it's 200 milligrams of acetaminophen instead of the 500 milligram dose. And I'm going to mix in there 65 milligrams of caffeine. Everybody thought this guy was fucking crazy. You know what that made? Excedrin. Mm. One of the best pain-reducing, fever-reducing, analgesics, over-the-counter med medicines that you could buy at that time. But based upon the clinical studies... Like, they thought, oh, we're not going to compete with this guy. We're going to blow him out of the water. Like, people don't realize the synergistic effects of things. And look, just because you have a clinical dose of 
6,000 milligrams of citrulline. First of all, it doesn't mean your body's assimilating 6,000 milligrams of citrulline. And besides, if you're on a proper diet, you don't need the 6,000 milligrams of citrulline. Just like glycerol, if you're on a heavy carbohydrate-based diet, glycerol might not work for you because your glycogen storages are always full. If you're on a, a, a reduced carbohydrate diet, you might feel glycerol more than anybody. But you need to create a synergistic blend that has something in there, different pathways to deliver blood for blood flow, um, hydration, et cetera, whatever you're looking to, to come up with. But yeah, clinical doses have really, uh, and it's really more for the Monday morning quarterbacks, I think. Yeah, for there's, sure. there, there's just a lot of that, you know. For me, I didn't care what a clinical dose, this is what I took. This is, if it wasn't enough, I took more. If I didn't need as much, and I was a less is more kind of guy. Yeah. So I never noticed a difference between 4,000 milligrams of citrulline or anything over that. I've, I've yeah. done eight. Like, what the fuck? I'm fucking wasting money. I'm just pissing money away. Yeah, I, I think uh, it just what it's done is and create... And body weight goes into that. Like, if these 150-pound guys, oh, you need 6,000 grams of... Dude, I don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> but aside from that, but even aside from that, look, if you're not training hard and you're not eating right... You could have all the 6,000 milligram <laughs> citrulline doses you want. You're not going to become a champion athlete. Yeah, it, it's created like a like blanket. Um, it, it's created like blanket products for the industry too, yeah. right? So you see a pre-workout, you know, six grams of citrulline, uh, might have a gram of agmatine, 350 uh, milligrams of caffeine, right. and you know, it's just like it's the same thing over and over shit. again. Yeah. Uh, but if you were to like rip the label off of every pre-workout and with a whole bunch of different formulas, I bet you nobody know the difference. It, well, well, for those, yes, uh, you know, for our store, we have almost 70 different pre-workouts, right. and they legitimately have different formulas. Right. Uh, if, if somebody were to try every one of those pre-workouts, what you'd probably find is, uh, the ones that you would least expect to be great right. are probably the ones that would affect you the most, yeah. but you're just not going to be prone to the marketing right. and, uh, you know, the crazy flavor that's on the bottle. Shining a toy, yeah. shining a toy. It's like on my pump product. I know we've talked about this in the past, but I have seven different components in there. None of them are clinically dosed, except yeah. for my, except for my uh, pine bark extract, which at the time nobody was using. The Amento Flavone, which I use, and only one other guy was using at that point. But it creates a good synergistic effect. And I had a thousand megs of lion's mane in there, which gives you that good, you know, mental focus and clarity. Um, yeah. But yeah, but it's the, those are the things that people are going to buy. Whatever, whatever's just like you said, whatever's flashy, whatever looks good. But the true athletes, they're going to take what works. And uh, th that's my market. When when I was younger, I never really switched up like supplements. Me neither. I always took the same thing. If I knew it worked and I could it digest works, it, leucine. Yeah, that, that's what I would take. I know there's a huge argument on glutamine, but I, I'm a big glutamine believer. You know, it it does have rebuilding cells, but for, for digestive issues, especially guys that are eating the way they do, immune system, you know, enhancements. I like think it, people were getting sued because they were marketing it as a pure uh, muscle builder, as a yeah, muscle yeah. recovery or muscle builder. Yeah, and uh, they had to take that off their labels, and now they can they don't advertise it as anything, and they right. let you make that decision. Well, there's look, it's been around for years. It's not going anywhere. You know, the the reason there's such a huge market for it because people do like it. They take it and they feel something from it. Whether whether it's not an immediate reaction, but they do feel there was only a gram of it in that airborne product, or maybe even 500 milligrams. I'm not even sure, but people felt it worked. They felt it helped their immune system. That's what you have to play into. What what do people feel? What what works? What have you used that works? And that's what I try to you know push to uh, to my market. 
So if you are uh, if you're building a supplement stack for yourself in 2020, uh, what are you throwing in there? So I have my performance pre-workouts. I have a high stim one, the Rogue. You sell at the store. I have my pump product, the Forge, which I like stacking. On some days, I've kind of backed, not backed off completely, but I've lowered the uh, the stims. But I've always been, my fir the first product I ever created was my rehab. Obviously, I didn't create that, you know, 20 years ago when I was using it. Right. I've systematically increased the, the compounds, the raw ingredients to have what I have today. I wish I had what I had back then. They didn't have this. I just used Gatorade yeah. as a carbohydrate source, but the basic fundamentals and principles of why I thought this product worked were there and they're still there. And I think it's probably one of the most underrated um, products in the industry around intra-workouts. That's when your body is breaking down. That's when your cells are tearing, you're doing damage. That's when they absorb the nutrients the most. It spares protein breakdown. It replenishes glycogen, hydrates you, complete amino acid profile. It's a solid product. Um, but I would always have my intra-workout. That, that's been a constant with me for as long as I've been, been doing this. Post-workout, it's, it's a whey isolate shake with some good um, fast digesting carbohydrates. So just to cut you off there, even if you're taking carbohydrates intra, you feel that your body still needs them post as well? Okay, so because I wasn't a huge carbohydrate guy, mm -hmm. the timing of carbohydrates I always felt were best suited during your workout. Slow release before, okay, just to get your blood sugar to a certain level because weight training is anaerobic activity. So your body starts burning sugar right away. Once your sugar level gets to a certain point, you start breaking down protein tissue because it's anaerobic activity. So if you're eating a small amount of carbs before your workout, you're pretty much at that level where you're gonna start tapping into protein for an energy source. So an intro workout with a medium amount of carbohydrates I thought was very conducive. And then you wanna replenish them post-workout and then I would back off them for the rest of the day. Okay. So th that was my timing of carbohydrates, intro workout and post-workout. Okay, and uh, I I've always felt personally that um, if I take a post-workout shake with a simple carb, I feel really good. Like yeah. I feel almost rejuvenated. Yeah. Um, but if I take an intra and a post, uh, maybe because our muscle amounts are a lot different, uh, but I always felt like I didn't get that rejuvenating effect when I took my post-workout. So you might have been craving it more post because you didn't have an intra. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're replenishing. But to, for, to my argument, you know, in my product, there's only 12 grams of carb 10. It's not a lot of, it's not, it's not a lot of carbohydrates. Depending on body weight, I recommend a scoop and a half for guys over 200 pounds. Okay. So they're getting a little under 20 grams of the carb 10. <clears throat> now the carb 10 is a very fast digesting, um, low glycemic carbohydrate. So there's no insulin spike. It kind of goes right into the cells for, for glycogen. So you are utilizing that. So based up, if you did an intra, maybe a cluster dextrin or something like that, that, you know, does release hydrochloric acid to break down, which carb 10 doesn't, you do get an insulin spike. Um, it weighs on you a little bit longer. So I could see why you're not getting that effect. But with the carb 10, I, I would think that you would still get that effect. Okay. And, and, and to my point, that's just really to prevent you from breaking down protein during your training. It's not going to fill you back up. Right. It's going to give you some glycogen to get to continue on your movements, you know, to, to, to use as energy, spare the protein where at the time the, the essential amino acid you're taking could actually be used for recovery instead of being burnt as, as fuel. Okay. So intra post, very important for yeah. you. Uh, Pre-workout sounds like you can small amounts, yeah. um, slow release carbohydrates. Are you a big amino guy? 
I am. I, okay, so in my time, they only had branch chains. And I knew, I was like, you know, this doesn't make sense. It's not a complete protein. So I used to have to go out and buy the other essentials and put them together to make my own food. They didn't have it. But the thing is, you know, people do what they're told. You know, people yeah. believe what they read. And, and unfortunately, that's, that's the society we live in. I just, just like you, you know, I just, I took it a step further. You know, like, this doesn't make sense to me. So, hey, this is what I'm going to do. But it worked, and I felt it. You know, my aminos I have now, I have them throughout the day. I'll add them in my water. I drink a lot of water. I'm probably a two-gallon-a-day water guy. So at times, you know, you want a little flavor. But I have a good amino product, you know, 12 grams. You know, it's not a heavy overload. Um, the flavoring's good, you know, so it kind of helps get the water down. But, um, but I'm not eating as much protein as I used to anymore. I don't need to. So that little extra bit of recovery um, helps. And it's a little with B vitamins. I feel more hydrated afterwards. Okay. Uh, anything else that you would throw in? I um, say glutamine too. So the glutamine I throw in also, but that's in my intra. I actually have that and extra okay. leucine in my intra with ornithine. Um, and I have a GDA in my intra, the pterostilbene. It's an antioxidant, so that helps shuttle the nutrients into your cells so you feel replenished during your workout. Um, I like my sleep product. I know you do well yeah, with it. Yeah. You know, it's just... yeah. We're actually sold out right now. <clears throat> okay, so yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I was a big GHB guy. Okay, in my time, it was legal. Yeah. Okay, they used to sell it at vitamin shop. They used to have it in liquid form, but I had guys that I was getting it from that had it in powder form. It was a little more potent and concentrated. Mm -hmm. It wasn't diluted in the, in the solution. Um, but, you know, I'm an early morning guy, and I was working up until late at night, so I'm only sleeping five, six hours. I would take GHB, I'd fall asleep for the night, and I'm, I'm waking up ready to go. So when I created my sleep product, and just like you said, I think it's one of, the, one of the other underestimated products in the industry. Just like you said, no sleep, no rest, you know, no days off. No, like, who, who are you kidding, dude? Like, what do you think... What do you think is happening to your body? Your central nervous system is going to shut down. Your body starts burning protein as an energy source because your body goes into start goes into survival mode. You're not supposed to be up 20 hours well, a day. It's a, it's a sick loop too. Is uh, the the less they sleep, the more caffeine they need. The more caffeine, the more so, stimulants, the more stress on their central nervous. So their recovery is horrible. I've had great feedback from customers in your store, my country, uh, customers across the country, yeah. guys with PST, you know, post-traumatic shock, uh, stress disorder that can't sleep, but because of the heavy dose of GABA, these guys were having crazy nightmares. He said that he uses mine with the heavy dose of GABA and it lowers his brain activity. He could sleep without having nightmares where he feels like he's back in the war doing yeah. some stuff that you know weighs on him heavily like i've had testimonials from guys and people putting on my blogs on the web it's a solid product but when i created that product you know like for every ingredient in my in any one of my products there's a specific purpose it's there you know i don't care if this is a this new patented trademarked ingredient with it with a clinical study i don't care if i tried it and I didn't like it, didn't feel anything from it. I'm sorry, I, I can't get behind it. You know, yeah. this is the stuff I've used. Um, like I said, I was a big GHB, uh, GHB guy. So when I created the Dream Chaser, I wanted to emulate the effects of the GHB. That's why I put the kava in there, which a lot of people are skeptical to use. It, it's weird. Like the first, I don't know, like 10 minutes, yeah. I almost feel like my anxiety goes up a little bit. That's from the, that's from the GABA dropping. Okay. Okay, and then you get the GABA tingles. Mm -hmm. But then once the kava kicks in, you kind of get like that little euphoric feeling. And then you're just out. And then you're, yeah. yeah. But six hours. I took it last night. Yeah. You know, six hours, and you wake up, and you're ready to take on the world. No that was hangover. the biggest problem we had with the Fenibut products yeah. is we would tell guys, if you need to wake up, 
Like, don't, don't take, take this product. You need an hour to wake up. Just yeah. like, it'll put you down. Yeah. But you're not getting up. Yeah. <laughs> if you can block out 10 hours of sleep, you're fine. Sure. But if you can't block that out, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. But for guys that like that lifestyle, no days off. And, you know, and look, we're workers, dude. We're businessmen. Yeah. You know, I have a family. You know, you're about to get married and probably start a family soon. You know, so you're going to you're going to have an idea you know, yeah. soon enough um, what it what it's like. Um, but sleep, you know. There's things I wish I could do for an extra hour of sleep at night, you know, but when I take, you know, a good, my, my sleep product, they have that stuff in you and the anti-anxiety components, which take the stress off the day, it's just a, a much, you know, uh, more effective and uh, better quality sleep. Okay. Yeah, I'm right on board with you there. So if, uh, if people that are watching this today want to follow you uh, or your company, where would you suggest that they go? They can go to Instagram. Um, I have all pro- – well, it's, it's I underscore Prevail Sups, or they go to a Facebook page, or uh, I have a website, www.iprevailsups.com. I have all product information. All my formulas are on there. Um, there's some testimonials. There's background stuff on me. There's videos on there. But I try to really push all the traffic to, to my uh, brick-and-mortar stores. So if they go to my Instagram, they'll see stores that I constantly have on my stories or in my post that uh, support the brand and are doing well with it. Um, but they, they could find it there. Okay. So you're mainly Instagram, no YouTube yet? Anything I have like YouTube. Um, you know, I'm a different generation yeah, guy, yeah. so I'm transitioning <laughs> into that, you know, um, but I do have an I Prevail Subs YouTube channel, which is the same videos that are there on the website. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of, you know, you try to figure out where, where do you want to direct them. Yeah. And guys, if you want to train uh, like anything that Jason was talking about, if you download our free training app, uh, he actually has a, a chess program on chess there. Chess program, yeah. And uh, you can kind of get a gist for how Jason trains. So thank you.